We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The voice of LBJ, who tried very hard to do away with uh, racial discrimination. He was quite the leader on that. He uh, was far more effective than his predecessor, John Kennedy. But we still have a long way to go. Who knew? Who knew? A lot of people thought that with the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president, somehow people imagined that might be the end of racial stereotyping and discrimination. And with the programs in the 1960s and 1970s, we thought our schools were the perfect place to uh, to really make changes for future generations. How have our schools worked? Well, despite the best of intentions, there are still problems there. And that is the name of a new book we're going to be discussing today with uh, a co-author, Amanda Lewis. Thanks so much for being with us, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the book, as I say, is Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. Thrives in Good Schools. That's just amazing. And, you know, today we have the symbols of Ferguson, Staten Island, the massacre at Charlestown. These points on a map symbolize our terribly frustrating continued struggle with racism as part of America's very identity. You know, it's I when I was growing up in the 50s, I thought racism was just a bizarre aberration held just down south and in poorer communities where whites had to compete with blacks or felt they had to compete with that. You know, and and some 50 years ago, it was a heady and optimistic time in which passage of civil rights laws held out the promise of a brighter future. In the mid-20th century, we came to understand that separate was not equal, especially in our public school system. We were at the dawn of a new thinking on education. Our schools would become part of the antidote to racism. New policies were instituted to address racial inequality in our school systems. Their effectiveness has been measured, and there are some disappointing surprises revealed through that research. And in their new book, Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools, authors John Diamond and our guest Amanda Lewis shed light on a surprising reality that, as the title says, despite the best intentions, Racial inequality actually thrives even in good schools. I thought this was an interesting review by Claude Steele, who is uh, executive vice chancellor and provost at the University of California at Berkeley and author of Whistling Vivaldi, How Stereotypes Affect Us and What We Can Do. 
Claude Steele says this work goes right to the heart of America's chief educational challenge, how our ordinary, well-intentioned day-in and day-out school practices can create dramatically different school experiences for students from different identity groups. He says, read this work and learn what can be done about it. Again, our guest today on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive is co-author Amanda Lewis, who is associate professor in the Department of African American Studies and Sociology and is a visiting fellow in the Institute of Government and Public Affairs at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of the award-winning Race in the Schoolyard, Negotiating the Color Line in Classrooms and Communities. Her research focuses on how race shapes educational opportunities from kindergarten through graduate school and how our ideas about race get negotiated in everyday life. Well, again, thanks, Amanda Lewis, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. How did this book come to be written? Was it an intention to do that? How did it happen to uh, appear in print? Well, John and I had been colleagues for a long time, and um, as you talked about, I had written, done some prior work thinking about kind of racial dynamics in schools, and John had been doing a lot of work on leadership and on black parents in particular, and... um, when somebody from the Riverview School District reached out to us, actually, and said, look, here in Riverview, and this is the school that we we write about in this book, and it's a very good school district. It's a school district that gets, uh, it's, you know, one of those cities that often gets named as one of the, you know, top places to live. Um, it's a district that a lot of people um, move to precisely because the schools are good, and this was an African-American administrator at the school who'd been a teacher for a long time and then a dean and then an assistant principal. And he said, you know, we have had, we continue to have a racial achievement gap in our school. And um, essentially what that means is that the black and the growing Latino population in the district continue to um, perform less well than white students in the district. And he said, you know, I've been concerned about this for decades, and I feel like we have made almost no traction on it, and I am nearing retirement, and I want to understand what's going on, and can you help? And, you know, John and I talked about it, and at at the time, you know, we took up his call not only because it was somebody that we knew and respected, but also because for us, you know, who had also been really um, thinking about this kind of quandary about how racial gaps in achievement persist even in 2015. Like, what is, how does race work, sort of like you were talking about in the intro, how does racism work today? That a lot, we see a lot of the same patterns that we saw 20, 30, 40 years ago, even though the mechanisms that produce them have changed, because a lot of the kind of old-fashioned Jim Crow-style racism right. is gone, right? So how does this work today? And for us, Riverview was in some ways a kind of best-case scenario to examine this. This isn't the kind of typical, you know, low-income black, Right. Um, majority minority schools as compared to like high income white suburban schools. This is a, a lot of kids in the same building, um, supposedly receiving the same resources. Um, this is a, you know, a community that has a very um, stable black community where most people are middle class or at least, you know, very solidly working class. It's not a kind of community that's in distress. So what is going on that we still see these kinds of differences, these gaps, even in a place like Riverview? Yeah, that's. It sounds like the kind of place where one would expect 
to, to not have such a, a separate and unequal uh, outcomes. I, yeah. When, when you began the research, did you have expectations of what you might find, or, or was it really a surprise? Well, yes and no. So um, we knew going in that there were a couple um, widely circulating myths, ideas, um, about what was going on. So there is in the kind of popular conversations about racial achievement gaps or just achievement in school, you know, when it has to do with um, racial minority groups, a couple of stories that people tell that, that they use to explain it. So one of the big stories is that um, that parents are driving it. So, you know, and, and there's right. two ways the story gets told. One is the story that, that suggests the reason Asian-American students are successful is because they have tiger moms, right? That's sort of the story that's become really popular in recent years, but yeah. builds on a kind of long-term story that this is about a community that has, the, you know, the right cultural stuff. They push their kids hard, and that's why they succeed. And then the flip side of this is that we tend to think that black and Latino families, if they're doing less well, are doing less well because their parents care less about school in some way or don't push their kids as hard. Um, and so that's one set of ideas that we knew we would have to explore somewhat just to see, you know, is this what's going on? And and the other one was um, a story that, um, that why, you know, and this is... M- most often apply to African-American kids, but the idea that they're not doing well in school because their peers discourage each other from achieving. And this appears in speeches across a range. I mean, you know, even the Obamas, when when they give a speech about education, somewhere in the speech is a sentence that says, you know, and we have to get rid of the idea that a black student trying to do well in school is acting white or that, you know, some version that suggests that black peers are discouraging each other, they tease each other, uh-huh, it's not yeah. cool to be smart, something like that. Um, and um, for John and I, when we started the work, we thought, well, okay, we have to try to understand if these things that people think is what's going on is really what's going on. And then if that's not what's going on, and if I will explain a second, it wasn't what we found, um, try to understand why these dynamics are so um, challenging to intervene on. Um, So in short, neither of those things were going on. And it's, you know, we weren't exactly, this part was not surprising to either of us. In fact, there's been an abundance of evidence. You know, our work just adds to a whole mountain of evidence that, in fact, black and Latino families really value education. You know, there's a long history in the United States of the African-American community fighting for access to full educational rights. Um, And that continues today. People, when we do survey research, we find that black families value education as much as any other group. So Mm -hmm. that just wasn't what was going on here. You know, black families were working hard to get their kids into Riverview schools. They were paying extra to do that. They were, you know, hounding their kids about homework. They were doing all the things that we think parents should be doing. And Riverview School is where again? What state? Uh, we don't say partly to protect the confidentiality. Ah. I will tell you, though, that recently we gave, uh, we were talking to a group of about 17, somewhere between 17 and 20 superintendents from districts like Riverview, right? 
very well-resourced suburban districts that are also very diverse, and all of them thought we were talking about their district. <laughs> the patterns, the patterns are in many ways similar. I mean, that was the the some of the the patterns are very similar. Um, it's so interesting that uh, they think it could be their school, and and what you talked about with stereotypes, frankly, stereotypes of of the Asian tiger mom, the parents pushing it, the you know, there's been a, a still an explanation, an assumption that uh, the uh, racial achievement gap implies that black students just don't care and the parents don't care about the education system. Yeah. But you found that completely false. And, you know, that just the fact that those stereotypes still exist, you know, it's disappointing, but research is yeah. research. Well, it is disappointing, but the thing about it that's so important to remember also is that the stereotypes are actually useful in certain ways. And I don't mean this in a positive way, but mm-hmm. the stereotypes that that this is about black disengagement or that this is about parents don't care lets the rest of us off the hook. Because if the story we have is that some kids don't do well in school because they just don't want to, then it means that our schools are just fine. You know, or the way we organize schools is just fine, the way we fund schools is just fine, the way we run schools, and really what needs to change is the people who are coming to schools, right? So the stereotypes are destructive in a lot of ways, but they also serve a kind of larger purpose to, to um, as you know, when you were talking at the beginning, those the kind of ideas that we have that schools are going to be the great equalizer, right? that partly persists because we have an idea that it's a meritocratic system, and those who work right. hard and want to succeed are the ones who do so. Interesting. We are talking on Keeping Democracy Alive with Amanda Lewis, co-author along with John Diamond of the new book, Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. And we've used the term a few times, racial achievement gap. I wonder if you could define that for our listeners. Sure. So the racial achievement gap has been a subject of a great deal of attention for probably the last 20 years, and it's essentially a pattern we see in national test score data, but also um, within districts themselves, in which we see a persistent gap over time in the scores of white and Asian students and black and Latino students. So if we looked at a graph of scores, for instance, on um, what people often think of as a national report card, the um, some of the national tests we do, you will see a persistent, um, uh, you know, that one set of lines on the graph are over time across both fourth and eighth and twelfth grade, across both math and reading, um, that one one line on the graph is higher than another line on the graph. So that's, that's literally what we think of when we think about achievement gaps, although they also manifest in terms of um, GPAs, SAT scores. There's a, there's a range of measures that, that we can talk about. Well, it does seem in recent decades, America, this, the education system has become just crazy for tests, test, test, yeah. test, teaching for yeah. tests. I, I have to ask, and I, I wondered about this having kids in school, yeah. what about the the cultural bias, perhaps, that may be built into these tests that have, you know, certain cultures as, you know, if, you, if you're within this culture, you do better, according to their tests. What about that, perhaps, cultural bias that's built into the tests, and maybe the tests themselves are faulty? Well, I, 
you know, there, there are organizations like FairTest who do a lot of work studying this. And it is true, I think what we are finding more and more, that some of it is about the kinds of questions that get asked. Right. Um, but there, there is also ways that when, and this is you should get a uh, measurement person on to talk more about this more in depth, but the, the big idea is that the way the test gets normed, so when they, when they decide which questions to keep and which, which questions to not keep, that they partly base that on who in their testing, because you know, they, they vet all the questions, right? Who does well on them? And are, and are the people doing well on them the people that they think should be doing well on them? So there, there is lots of politics in the construction of tests themselves. Sure. But I also think the... The thing that we learned from Claude Steele, who you talked about earlier, from some of his work and other work from folks um, doing research on stereotype threat, is that part of what happens when we think about these tests, especially the kind of testing we're doing now, which is very high stakes, in which there are lots of consequences yeah. for the school and oh. for kids oh, yeah. and how they do, is that the stereotypes that we have that suggest that some groups are smarter than other groups, right. better at math, all those things, can really negatively impact the performance of kids on these tests. Hmm. Um, and, and the experimental work that the social psychologists have done in this area is really overwhelming and convincing. And part of why it's overwhelming and convincing is because it applies to all of us. So essentially the big idea is all of us are part, have social identities that are, that are negatively stereotyped in some way. It could be age, right? It could be gender, right. it could be race. And anytime we're in a domain in which that negative stereotype about us is relevant and hmm. we have the possibility of confirming a negative stereotype about right. our group, we tend to underperform. Interesting. And, yeah, and part of what they found is that that's true partly because we get distracted. So one of the things that I've seen a million times in schools is you'll go in and you'll see, you know, in like a predominantly black and Latino school, you'll see a teacher say to the kids, you know, you know, people have a lot of negative stereotypes about you, and this is why you have to really focus on this exam today and show, prove them wrong. And what we know now is that's exactly the wrong thing to say to kids, because it gets them, you know, when you're focused on an exam or on any of these kinds of tests, you need to be focused on one thing and one thing only, uh, the yeah. problems in front of you. And if your brain, if you're worried about what it's going to mean, whether you do well or not, all these kind of things... Um, and, and they found this for, again, you know, both around high-stakes tests with college students around math performance for along racial lines, around along gender lines. So if you remind women about negative stereotypes about math before a math exam, they do worse. If you tell them ahead of time that this is an exam that's proven not to have any kind of gender, you know, so there are lots of ways that we can manipulate the experiment and show that if people are worried about this, they're not going to perform as well. Interesting. And it sounds like, despite the best intentions, which is the title of the book, expectations can yeah. <laughs> absolutely stand in the way. And I wonder about some of the, the cultural norms these days. You know, on, on one hand, you have uh, nice Oxford button-down shirts with khakis. On yeah. the other hand, low-hung baggy pants. Yeah. You got cornrows and Brooks Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> these are among the current cultural styles, though mm -hmm. anything, they're, they're not equal in the eyes of school officials, I would think. What role does clothing, hair, language play in the expectations that teachers have for students and as well as, as how they actually treat them? Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. So one of the things that we found is there are lots of ways in which um, 
So, you know, part of the part of the background of the action here is that, you know, race is one of these primary categories, which means that when we meet somebody, when we interact with them, we are kind of automatically categorizing them along age lines, gender lines, racial lines. But when we do that, that categorizing isn't neutral. It carries with it a whole host of you know, cultural beliefs, stereotypes, whatever you want to call them. This is often what people talk about when they talk about implicit bias, but all those things go along with it. So as soon as you, all those things get activated. And so part of what we found is there are lots of ways in which um, that priming of ideas about race can have negative consequences for kids in terms of the kind of expectations people have for them, in terms of how they get treated in the hallway and in classrooms. And you're right that the way that kids perform um, blackness or whiteness, the way that they, there, there are lots of other signals that they can provide that can either complicate that kind of automatic reading or challenge it in certain ways. So yes, there were kids who recognized and were very strategic about trying to wear very preppy clothes to kind of interrupt negative stereotypes about their groups mm. or trying to, and other people like Prudence Carter written about this, about kids who learn how to kind of be bicultural in the context of school or learn that if they um, take on certain kinds of cultural performances that people are less likely to assume that they don't belong mm. in a high-track class or those kind of things. The challenge is to this that we also know that it's really important, particularly for um, members of disenfranchised groups like African-Americans and Latinos, to have a strong sense of identity yes. in order to succeed really well. So there's this counter-message that's being constantly given to them, which is that um, you should be proud of who you are, but, but don't be too, you know, I mean, like, you need to moderate your blackness, but feel good about it, you know, or that institutions, you know, we get, they get lots of reminders in schools that their racial group is, is demeaned and thought of as being less than in various ways, mm. but we want to be proud of you who you are, right? So there's, you know, there, there are ways that cultural performances matter, but they matter because the school makes them matter, right? So yeah. because teachers, yeah. adults, other people think that how you wear your pants matters, right? And it's interesting, you know, there's a, some research by a guy named Edward Morris, University of Kentucky, that said that even when white kids do, you know, wear low-hanging jeans, wear mm -hmm. caps backwards, you know, do the same kind of things, they don't face the same kind of penalties. Oh so, my. you know, it's not just having low-hanging jeans. It's a kind of combination of things that cause people to, to read that as a sign that you are not serious somehow. And somehow it may possibly relate to color of the skin. <laughs> Absolutely. <Exactly. laughs> you know, and I, I'm reminded of, uh, oh, many years ago, I think in the 19th century, there were schools for Indians to deculturate the yeah. uh, Native Americans and to make them white. And these expectations that people have. And what's wrong with cultural identity? Nothing. I'm sure there are people who are, you know, have baggy pants and whatever, and their identity yeah. who may possibly be good students at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And the stakes are, I mean, the, the stakes are actually much higher in places like Riverview. The, what happens partly is in schools that are, that are majority-minority, the kind of meaning of, of that kind of stuff te tempers off a little bit. So 
what happens in a in a space that is like Riverview, kind of white dominated in certain ways, because yeah. sort of functions as a kind of white space. It's a dominant culture. Who has yeah. the most power? Is that those kind of things matter even more? Because then mm. you know the signal is: Are you you know if you're if you're wearing a polo shirt and khaki mm-hmm. pants, that must mean that you're a more serious student than if you wear jeans and whatnot. Wow! Oh, that's disappointing. Uh, again, Despite the Best Intentions is the name of the book. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Amanda Lewis, co-author of the book. And back in the time of Martin Luther King, it seemed the terms desegregation and integration were used interchangeably. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, there may be distinctions between them. What are those distinctions between desegregation and integration, which you found existed at Riverview. Yeah, it's a really important distinction because I think what we find in places like Riverview that these are desegregated spaces and they have been right. for a long time, meaning they have kids all in the same building together. So they're not formally separate separate buildings. But when you go one or two layers down, you see what some scholars have talked about is kind of second second generation segregation. So one of the, the shocking things upon walking into a building like Riverview, if you don't know about these patterns ahead of time, is, you know, you see all the kids in the hallway. There's black kids, there's white kids, there's Latino kids, a few Asian you know, all walking around. And then you go into a classroom once the bell rings and classes start, and you see these advanced honors and AP classes that are almost entirely white. And you see these regular, supposedly regular classes that are almost entirely black and brown. And you think... How could this be true? You know, this is this is 2015, right? So how could it be that here's a building with all these kids coming into the school, and that once they actually go to classes, there are these what we know to be the best classes in the school. There were most of the white kids go, and these other classes, which are okay, but you know, not as challenging and not and don't have uh, some of the perks that go along with them, like extra points on your GPA and all those kind of things. And those classes are predominantly black, and so the. When we think of integration, you know, the, the standard should be like actual substantive full participation as, you know, in, in a community. And what we find in too many places, and this is true nationally, I, mean, I could name four or five other books for you right off the top of my head of people who found similar patterns, you know, in North Carolina and Michigan and California, all over the place. What we find is a lot of desegregated schools, but not a lot of integrated schools. Mm. Wow, that's an interesting distinction. And and you write about the official routines of schools and, yeah. and how they can provide cover for the actual routines, which are often racialized. What do you mean? What do you do? You mean to suggest that educators and administrators may intentionally be hiding what is going on in our schools? In fact, we mean quite the opposite. I mean, part of what happens in schools, right? So schools are busy, they're complicated, you're dealing with lots of students every day. So there's lots of improvisation that goes on in the daily, just functioning of classrooms, hallways, all that. So what we found that was really interesting, and I'll give you an example from discipline. When you ask people in the school about discipline, the official routine, right, the kind of official way, story of what happens is, you know, people often refer to the disciplinary book. There's a book that says, here are the rules. If you're in the hallway during class time and you don't have a hall pass, then you get detention. If you come to school and you're wearing a shirt that's two inches above your bed, you know, where there's clear guidelines about what, you know, like not skirts too short, not right. shirts, you know. If, if these things, then you either have to go home or X, right? So there's all these rules right now. 
when you talk to people about what actually happens in hallways, in schools, what the actual consequences are for cursing in class, for instance, or any of those kind of things, what you find is a really different set of patterns. So the, the, the rule book is completely race neutral, right? It doesn't right. say, oh, we are going to punish certain kids, we're going to punish the African-American kids in the hallways more than others. Or, you know, and not having a race neutral official story is really important because it, it makes it seem like it's a legitimate, you know, this is focused on keeping the school orderly so people can learn, all that sort of thing. But when you learn about what's actually happening, what you find is there are that, um, African-American students in the school and Latinas also are not only punished more often for rule-breaking, even though they're not breaking the rules more often, right? So that's an important right, right. But they're also getting punished more for the same kinds of infractions. And that that process is often, and this is sort of where the title of the book came, you know, in term, both in terms of disciplinary stuff but and academic stuff, despite the best intentions of the people who are 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 metting out the discipline. They don't mean to be doing this, right? right? But they also don't notice that they're doing it. And it's 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 destructive in many ways because you have this set of idea, the kind of official story of, of it, which says we're a race neutral, hmm. we're a fair system, and then you have the actual practice of it, which is constantly signaling to some kids in the school, you're not a full citizen, um, reminding them that they are part of a group that is generally in our culture demeaned in many right, ways. Right. You know, so those and and also really challenging. And some people have asked us, well, why do you talk about discipline in a book about academic achievement? And part of it is because we are learning more and more how much of a sense of a belonging in a school is important to kids' academic experiences. And what these kind of patterns signal to kids over and over again is you don't really belong here, right? And that has all kinds of negative um, implications for their overall academic experiences. Boy, I can sure think back to my uh, public school years. Wanting to belong was just so incredibly important. And, you know, we've seen kids who feel like they don't belong, you know, they get self-destructive oftentimes. And, of course, you know, lots of other kids can become self-destructive, too. That's not the only explanation for that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But wanting to belong is, uh, is very important. And if there are, like... You know, unwritten rules that you just kind of know walking around. You know, this is their school. This is not my yeah. school. It's their school. Yikes. That's really, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's a, a tough thing to get over. And, you know, I, as you were describing, I was thinking about we have laws in America. We are a nation of laws and not men. Laws are supposed to apply equally to everybody. Justice is blind, right? Well, Look, we have this mass incarceration, which we've spoken about on this show uh, a few times. A lot of, I mean, it's disproportionately African-Americans who are in jails. And the the laws are clearly, uh, you know, allegedly uh, uh, race neutral, but bull, it's just, it's just not. And I want to go into this territory, which is a little bit challenging for much Mm -hmm. of American history. Mm -hmm. There was no secret that official policy in a great many areas of these currently United States operated on the assumption that blacks were just inferior, that they were inherently just not as capable of learning as white kids. This assumption, you know, it's decades, decades long. This sort of racism may now be less blatant, but it's surely still there. I, I hesitate to ask, but I will. Are there are, are there those who conclude that this is the real explanation 
that blacks are just inferior. Do they have people said that, or is that just sort of a something people don't say anymore in polite society? Well, it's certainly something that very few people say. Right. And I will say, I mean, I think that's why those the, the stories, the myths that we talked about at the beginning are so important, because we've sort of updated it, right? So rather than saying certain groups are inherently inferior, we now see they're culturally inferior, sort Ooh. of, right? We say, <sighs> you know, if they, if they wanted it better, if they worked harder, if they just, you know, of course they could do it, right? But it, the problem is they're just not doing it. And I think the... So the the kind of explicit rhetoric we have is um, less of the kind of in, inherent differences and more of cultural differences. But I will say to you that walking in and out of schools like Riverview, seeing the 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 ways that school that students are segregated within those buildings, I I think it's impossible to understand how that manages to persist today, right, in, in, in 2015, without thinking about that legacy of ideas yeah. about inferiority and all those things, because it would be unintelligible. I mean, we wouldn't be able to make sense of it if the situation were reversed, right? right? So if white students were the ones that were predominantly in the regular classes, and black and Latino students were the ones that predominantly in the AP and honors classes, people would automatically think something was wrong, <laughs> right? And it just would, they would just think, oh, this, you know, clearly this is not organized. Clearly something's wrong in the placement process, you know. But it's only because of the kind of widespread way that we have mm. of making sense of, I mean, not just in schools, but in schools, especially of these kind of deep and persistent inequalities that we live with them and live with them day in and day out and live comfortably with them and don't feel, you know, I mean, there are people, like I said, um, the the assistant principal we talked at the beginning who who are uncomfortable a lot of the time thinking about these things. But for most of us, we manage, and this is part of what we found actually in interviews with parents and things, you know, we have a set of ideas that sort of explain it away so that we're not really responsible and it doesn't require us to do much about it. Yeah, and I'm reminded of, uh, oh, in the political talk, uh, people talk about playing the race card as if talking about discrimination and problems like these and and just... uh, frankly, what appears to be more subtle, but still institutional racism. The talking about that is something you just don't do. They'd rather sweep the problem under the rug. There are actually people who tend to be on the right who say that talking about racial problems is in itself racist, which is just boggles my mind how they yeah. could come to that conclusion. Any reaction to that? Well, you know, I think you're exactly right. So there's like, it's kind of a, there's a spectrum, right? So there's people who are very vigorously say, really talking about race is the problem. If we just stop talking about it, right, go away. Right, right. And we've seen that even <laughs> reflected in Supreme Court decisions in recent decades, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, um, but the, you know, that's on a continuum with a lot of people who are much more well-meaning and probably identify as liberal who would say that they themselves are colorblind, you know, that they recognize, you know, there's some, some people aren't, but that they believe that most people don't see race anymore and, and you know, sort of take the ideal as articulated by Martin Luther King about, you know, I want my children to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of the skin, and sort of assert that ideal as a reality, right? So say, this is how we are. And the challenge is that, for instance, talking about the kinds of patterns that we're talking about at schools, is it's only by recognizing all the ways that race continues to matter that we can make it matter less. 
so when we deny, when we say we're post-race, when we say talking about race is really the problem, what we're doing is kind of protecting, right, shielding, making um, all the kind of subtle patterns of racism that persist, so making it possible for them to continue on uninterrupted. And so that, that argument, exactly the way you're saying, isn't isn't neutral anyway. It's not. It's not. <laughs> no. It's actually helping to sustain a, a set of practices that benefit some kids much more than others. Well, back you know, there, there used to be people who'd say there wouldn't be a racial problem if they just knew their place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. In, right. I mean, carrying it on, institutionalizing racism, and and you've talked about the the so-called low effort syndrome, where you know, as we talked about earlier, that uh, you know people expect this of certain races, and it's obviously simply not true. I have seen a surprising and frankly disturbing lack of performance by kids and by schools, quite frankly, in, in nearby schools uh, around where uh, we're coming from, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which are economically comfortable communities in this area of the country. Clearly, students and school officials are not the only variables contributing to different treatment and outcomes. What role do parents play in their children's treatment and success in school? I mean, I've seen kids who just, again, have uh, low effort syndrome, I think, and it has nothing to do with race. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that we find, you know, a lot of the things that we think are part of what's going on here, like whether it's teasing of kids who are achieving or, like you said, the low effort thing, what we found is, yeah, some of those things exist, but they exist across all groups. They don't explain the racial achievement gap because white kids are as likely to tease each other for being nerds or being brainiacs as black kids. So it's not something that (laughs) can explain why we see differences in achievement because everybody's doing it, right? And actually, the, the role, parents do play an important role, we found in Riverview and places like them in terms of the achievement gap, but it's not the one we typically think. So what we found, and this was the part that was at least partly a surprise, was, you know, we, we always focus when we think about these things on what are the black kids doing wrong or what, what should black parents be doing differently, but, and, and don't often focus on white families. And what we found, importantly, was that white parents had, were playing a crucial role in the district in maintaining some of these racial patterns. And a lot of it had to do with the ways that they not only advocated vigorously for their kids to be in the best classes, um, with the best teachers, with the most resources, all those kind of things, to really um, support the tracking system, but that they also worked to block change so that when the school wanted to make changes that they felt would benefit all kids and, and might actually um, have a, um, an impact on, on changing some of these achievement patterns, white families resisted. And we heard this from lots of different kinds of administrators, personal, and the white parents themselves that said, you know, you know, we know people have talked about leveling or getting rid of tracking, but, you know, they said that they would consider leaving the district if that happened because for them, this was a way to protect their kids' experience of having a kind of school within a school, right, of having a kind of advantaged experience within an otherwise kind of large context. Um, and so understanding their kind of, again, often articulated non-racial ways, often discussed about using lots of code words about high achievers or low achievers and people who care about school and not, and that sort of thing. But they played a really critical role in um, ensuring that even when the school recognized that some of their practices were a problem, it was very difficult to change them. 
Wow, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered about tracking systems. And, you know, I'm reminded of uh, the old-fashioned British schools, that there was one level for the working class and another for the upper class, locking new generations into old strictures. And, and you know, you just get tracked really quickly. Now, it's not the, quite the same here, but I'm reminded of that. And, it, and you know, there's this tracking system. And white, as you mentioned just now, parents of white kids uh, insist that their kids be placed in upper-level classes. This tracking system that they support I guess it's kind of an institutional mechanism that that undermines true integration and equity inside the school. Are the, are the parents, these these white parents, aware of that paradox? How committed are white parents to overcoming this institutional problem? It doesn't sound uh, real hopeful on that, actually. Well, it was interesting. I mean, there was a, it was one of those things that it took us a while to piece together because there were such deep contradictions because a lot of these white parents, you know, they, they chose to live in Riverview. There are lots of other predominantly white suburbs that nearby that also had good schools that they hadn't chosen, right? So these were, you know, liberal parents who said they wanted their kids to be in diverse schools, right? They they valued the fact that um, Riverview was a place where it wasn't all white. You know, some of the parents talked about, well, we didn't want our kids to have a kind of totally white-bred experience. But they were, in the end, mostly willing to sacrifice a, a diverse experience for an advantaged experience. And by that, I mean, when we asked them about it, you know, they would say, yeah, we moved here for the diversity. But when you asked, you know, are your kids, do your kids have a diverse set of friends? Do you think that the classes are diverse? They would say no. They say would say no. Their their friends are you know somewhat, but not as diverse as you might expect. And and they knew that their kids' classes weren't very diverse. And they um, they're okay with were that. ambivalent about changing it. Yeah. You know, they yeah. just. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have said to me, well, you can't fault them. You know, they love their kids. People are going to advocate for their kids. And that's all true. But it also implies that way of framing it implies that, that other parents don't love their kids. And other parents were also trying to advocate for their kids. They just weren't getting the same kind of response from the school. And, um, you know, it also, for, for me anyway, highlights that we can't leave it up. You know, parents are never going to be an equalizing force, right? They're always going to be wanting what's best for their kid. And it's really up to the school and the district to kind of be the force that looks out for the common good, that sort of says we can't divide schools to benefit, you know, the most well-resourced kids. That's not what we say we're doing, and that's not what we should do, right? We have right. to divide devise our school systems so that they serve all kids well. So we have high expectations for all kids. So, you know, we're doing, doing all the things that we say we're doing, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's very challenging in a context in which... Some groups of people have a lot more resources and regularly deploy those resources in ways that pay off. Well, yeah, we've heard uh, money changes everything. And as as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, as you were saying, most teachers and staff at Riverview do have the best of intentions for all of their students. What do they say about the actual treatment of students? Do they feel that all children, regardless of race, are treated fairly? What did you find about that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Most of the conversations we had, and these were very thoughtful educators, you know, would sort of start off by saying, yeah, you know, everybody's treated the same. And then, you know, and then the kind of layers of nuance would come in. So one of the conversations we had with a young African-American teacher early on in the project, she said, you know, I 
I partly I became a teacher because I wanted to help other African American kids do what I did, you know, go to a good college, be successful in the world. But when she thought about her kind of, you know, the the, the minutiae of her daily process, right? Mm-hmm. So not the big ideas, right? But the daily unfolding right. of her work, she said she realized that she actually monitored, her, she'd been monitoring her white kids more closely than the African-American students in her class. And she said a lot of it had to do with her, um, the kind of feedback she got from other teachers, but her own experience that, that, you know, that their parents were going to be upset if they didn't do well. And that, you know, she was often acting in anticipation that certain parents were going to be um, calling her or showing up if their kids weren't getting A's. And so she would, you know, kind of monitor some kids' homework more than others, or if they got a B on a test, you know, kind of follow up them. You know, for some kids, getting a B a test was, was good. But for mm-hmm. other kids, it was, she was worried, but, you know, maybe this, you know, or they're going to, the parents are going to be worried about this. So, Part of what we heard from teachers is a lot of kind of a sense of acting anticipation that certain parents who they imagine to be, you know, there's a lot of conflating of race and class here, right? So a lot of assuming that white kids were mostly upper middle class, right? And assuming that black kids weren't. So that you sort of read, because it's hard to read class, and you know, the kids all look the same. They're all wearing the same clothes. So Mm. people often used skin color as a kind of measure that stood in for lots of other things. And one of those things that stood in for was their sense of what families wanted, expected for their kids. And that translated into, um, you know, what I sometimes think of as, it's, it's sort of like death by a thousand cuts, right? So some mm. kids getting more time to answer question, getting, getting reminded to turn in their homework, getting feedback, okay, what happened on this next exam? You know, here, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? Um, so that sort of things, and the other part of this does have to do with the tracking, with teachers saying, you know, we say that this is a college prep school for everyone, but, you know, recognizing that the kids that were in honored AP classes were getting more. You know, they were getting pushed. One of the, one of the administrators talked about bell-to-bell teaching. Like, in some classes, the teachers are teaching from the moment the bell rings to the moment the bell rings. In other classes, the class starts and there's, you know, a few minutes hanging out, then there's some instruction that goes on, they're typically done four, five, six minutes before the bell rings. And unto itself, it seems small, but cumulatively over time, what the kind of sense of pressure, expectation, all those things um, in these different spaces um, has consequences and adds up, right? So it's all this kind of subtle stuff that's different than what it used to be, but all cumulatively matters quite a lot. Well, it certainly does. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we're on keeping democracy alive, and schools are very, very important to having a sense of democracy, citizenship, feeling part of uh, our own government, and, and, you know, feeling like we actually do get a chance to participate and that we have real power. Schools are terribly important with that. What about the teachers and administrators that that you worked with, are they open to the findings that, that you and uh, John Diamond uh, came up with? Were they, are they willing to take action to address the concerns so that we can achieve more equitable and effective schools? What, what are you finding about, about uh, teachers and administrators' openness to looking at this stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the leverage we have in this context, right, what it it does matter that people have good intentions. It does matter yeah. that people want all their kids to be successful because they are open to the idea of change, right? So, you know, they they do have to juggle and manage the pressures that they get 
the kind of competing pressures they get. Um, and lots of them talked about efforts that they'd made, some of which were successful and some of which generated a lot of pushback. So one sort of thing that a teacher had done, this is a teacher who had worked in um, urban school district for a long time, you know, teaching high-level math. So it had a lot of, you know, black and Latino students in the past and it's like ca- calculus AP math classes. And he got to Riverview and the AP math, the calculus classes he were t- was teaching had, were mostly white. And he was like, well, what's going on here? And part of what happens is that kids get steered early on in elementary school, the beginning of middle school. And if you get to high school and haven't taken algebra yet, then you can never catch up, right? There's no way to get right. to AP math because the sequence is is um, is tight and you can't skip over anything. So you're already behind and you can't catch up. So he had lots of um, black and Latino students who were doing very well in his freshman algebra class, but they were just never going to get to AP calculus because there just wasn't enough time in the four years. So he talked to administrators at the school and um, got support to offer um, geometry in the summer as a kind of way to kind uh-huh. of yeah. skip yeah. these kids ahead. Now, I don't know that I would have taken up the opportunity to take geometry for six hours a day in the summer when I was 15, yeah. but a lot of these kids took <laughs> come up on the offer. And um, within two or three years, he had doubled and then tripled the number of black and Latino students in AP math. And it was an interesting experiment that showed reminded everybody, right, that that their absence from these classes before had not been about capacity or their ability to do the work. It had been about other things. Um, and I think it was important symbolically for a lot of folks sort of reminding them that something was going on that was keeping kids who were capable of doing this work from getting into those spaces. Mm. Now, other teachers had tried other experiments. So one of the things the social studies department did was to try to detract yeah. sophomore social studies, you right. know, the history classes. Um, and the way they did this is by creating what they thought would be a kind of innovative program of having the classes organized by topic. So it's kind of a world studies year. And so what they wanted to do is rather than kids signing up for an honors class or a regular class, they wanted them to sign up for whatever area they're most interested in, you know, African studies, Middle Eastern studies, um, et cetera. And, um, have classes that were challenging for everybody, but that were organized in heterogeneous groupings. And, you know, they said there was lots of ways that what they described as kind of internal white flight happened anyway, so that parents would kind of push their kids into the European Studies class or into the Middle Eastern Studies class in a way. So, you know, they'd had kids who'd shown up for African Studies because they were really interested in it, whose parents had kind of pushed them out or, you know, wondered whether, you know, had, had, you know, Part of what happens in the school, like Riverview, is that achievement itself becomes racialized. So when mm. people walk into a space and see a lot of black and brown faces, they just assume that it's not going to be as good of a class. They just assume it's a lower-level class. And so they immediately opt out. You know, So there's a way in which some of the things the school did got undermined because of, because of those kinds of dynamics. But they were always trying. I will tell you that there's, you know, there are some people who've written about kind of detracking efforts yeah that were district-wide, and some places have managed to be very successful, but they've had to be very strategic about it, because as soon Mm -hmm. as you start doing this, you will get huge amounts of pushback from the community, and often pushback from people in the community who um, have a lot of power, and so people sometimes lose jobs over things like that. So there's, you know, that's always kind of at stake in these kinds of um, equity efforts. 
Boy, it's always interesting in school districts. You have sometimes you know, teachers and administrators on one side and parents on the other, and oh boy, it can get messy. Yeah. Doesn't matter it's, where it is, yeah. you know. But you know, sometimes parents want to call the shots, and and it doesn't necessarily help the education system. And then you have yeah. you know school administrators who want the uh, parents to, you know, buzz off sometimes. So yeah. I don't know. It's got to be a mixture of both, and and those cultural norms certainly come in there. What, what do uh, what do administrators, teachers, and parents need to do to narrow the achievement gap and create racial diversity and equality, uh, and and deal with this uh, uh, racial achievement gap? In other words, if you could paint a picture of an yeah. ideal solution, yeah, what would it look like? Well, you know, I think the first thing I would say is there's a challenge that goes beyond even context like Riverview that I think nationally we, we, we need to confront, which is that we fund schools, we continue to fund support schools at such unequal levels um, that that nationally is always going to be part of these um, these dynamics. And, you know, there's been recent work by Sean Reardon and other people that showed that the achievement gap along class lines is also growing. So we have some really big have-have-not challenges nationally in, in schools, as we do elsewhere, that mean that those who have a lot of resources are doing better and better and better, and those who don't have them are doing worse. And, you know, this, again, is, is a major challenge to our kind of national story about being a place of opportunity when we can predict the best predictor of SAT scores these days is your zip code, right? It's it's literally how much money you have. That. And that, that that is a problem because I don't think yeah. anybody would say, oh, clearly rich people are smarter, right? There's something <laughs> else going on. So that's one set of dynamics that we have to think about because across states there's huge differences in funding, but even within states there's massive inequalities that persist. Mm-hmm. That aside, there's also a whole set of dynamics within schools. And this is part of why John and I focused on Riverview is that even within schools and buildings, the stuff that teachers and administrators can control, there are lots of other ways to intervene. And one of them really is to rethink tracking as a system. We have lots of information that heterogeneous groupings are not educationally harmful, right? So right now we're, we're grouping homogeneously in a lot of places. We're like putting, we're taking kids, we're saying some of you have, you know, this skill, skill set and some of you don't, and so we're going to separate you. And what we find is that heterogeneous groupings or, you know, untracked, detracked classes um, are good for everybody. And if they're done right, don't have any negative consequences for high school kids and, and benefit the kids who are perhaps lacking you know, in certain areas. And part of this is also realizing that this is about a skill set. This is not about capacity or ability. You know, of course, at the very edges, right, so people always say, well, what about the super gifted kids or what about the learning, you know, kids with learning disabilities? And that is, you know, on either very end of the continuum, right? Mm-hmm. So there are very small percent of kids in our systems who are so truly gifted that they need a separate experience. Or there, there's a small group of kids who really have learning challenges and need a kind of different experience. But for in the most part in the middle, all kids do better with, with, with higher expectations and, you know, and better educational experiences. Yeah. Um, so thinking about that would be one major kind of organ, way of reorganizing and rethinking how we, how we organize kids in schools. I would also say that, you know, um, 
for schools, it's really important to pay attention to their own data, right? So the question is, you have a set of values about what you're going to do in your school, and when you look at the actual outcomes, both along achievement lines, along disciplinary lines, et cetera, are your values matching your outcomes? And if they're not, then you need to start taking another look at the layers that you and I were talking about earlier about, okay, you have an official set of practices, an official set of rules. Is that how you're actually... um, how the rules are being put into practice, for instance. Or if you have an official set of guidelines around educational expectations, you know, that everybody's going to have access to a college preparatory um, experience in classrooms, is that actually happening, right? And intervening on the kind of behavioral aspects of what's going on in your school. Um, uh, One of my colleagues, Peter Noguera, has talked a lot about it being easier to intervene on educators' behavior than on their attitudes, Right, getting mm-hmm. people to change their ideas can sometimes take a really long time. <laughs> but you sure. can change practices. You can change behaviors just by setting up very particular kinds of guidelines. Um, and so those kinds of things make a big difference. When we're referring kids for disciplinary practices or referring them to special ed, having study teams where you have multiple people in a room sort of talking about what's going on, so it's not any one person who's making a decision about those kinds of things. There's lots, so there's lots of ways within a school that we can try to make sure that, again, kids are having, you know, all kids are having full citizenship, that they're having what we talked about earlier is a more integrated experience. Um, Yeah, I really feel like... those are the kinds of things that that I would do, you know, if I could wave my magic wand. (laughs) Well, I wish you could. I wish you could. But, you know, if we can feel, you know, a sense of identity, when people feel like they're part of something... Uh, it, it you know it, it does a lot better and if, if, yeah. if people don't feel like they're part of something that they're getting the message that they're you know not really part of something uh, boy it can it can hurt there's a lot of pressure on schools to to fix things and it's a challenging situation to be in especially with the defunding of education that has just yeah. gone on and on and on I mean how you and and you have as a result of that sometimes these charter schools which is a, I think a terrible idea it, it you know it picks up out the kids uh, from the public school and continues to defund education. Fascinating book, Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. Authors Amanda Lewis, who's been our guest today, and John Diamond, it's put out by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for uh, your dedication to this very important issue. Amanda Thank Lewis, thanks so much. Thank you for a great so conversation. I really enjoyed it. All right. It's about schools. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. The guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom ready to sell. Fortunate if you have time to eat. Back in the classroom, open your books. She but the teacher don't know I mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. Into the slot, 
you gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe Round and round and round you go Something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance 